Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, just a quick note from our sponsor. We are thrilled to have Amboss as our sponsor for today's episode. Let's hear from James, an internal medicine resident from the Bay Area, and how he uses Amboss. I didn't know that Maha was a feature of hypertensive emergency. Like, you know, everyone uh. thinks about the typical um, organ dysfunction. So the, this patient ended up having, you know, Maha. So I think that like little bit of nuance I picked up really quickly from accessing Amboss, like when I was doing the admission. The other thing is it's organized very intuitively. You know, when you go to an up-to-date website, there might be some organization like, you know, organized into clinical features or diagnostics. The way Amboss is, is that that information is not open unless you click on it. So if I want to go directly to the diagnostics section, it's really easy for me to do that. And I think it's much harder to find the, the necessary information via other resources. And, you know, all resources have their role, but I think it was really helpful in providing me with the information at a level that, you know, allowed me to advance that patient's care without like getting so bogged down into it. You can try Amboss for free by signing up on amboss.com. Also, this episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians, so click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, on to the episode. This is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And this is Dr. Victoria Mladenovic, a second-year internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And this is the Core I Am Thigh Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we will be focusing on guideline-directed medical therapy, also known as GDMT in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Okay, so let's get into the pearls we'll be covering on today's episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, beta blockers. Is one beta blocker better than the other? And how do you explain to your patients what beta blockers do? Pearl 2, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and ARNIs. What's preferred, ACE, ARB, or an ARNI, and why? Pearl 3, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. What's the difference between spironolactone and a plaronone? And when do you think about stopping MRAs? Pearl 4, SGLT2 inhibitors. What's the thought behind why SGLT2 inhibitors are helpful in heart failure? Pearl 5, approach to initiation of GDMT. Which GDMT meds do you start first in your patients and in what order? All right, let's start with our first class of meds, beta blockers. And specifically, we're going to be talking about carvedilol, bisoprolol, and metoprolol succinate, right? That's where the evidence base is really there. You know, I feel like we all have this vague idea of how beta blockers work. They decrease sympathetic drive on the heart, right? But is there an exact mechanism that's been proven? Yeah, you know, from what I've read, there's all these hand-wavy explanations, myocardial energy metabolism, improved remodeling, energy efficiency. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you have 12 different mechanisms that are being proposed, that means that nobody fully understands it. That's Dr. Greg Katz, a cardiologist at NYU, dropping some realness. I guess regardless of if we understand the mechanism or not, what we do know is that beta blockers work. So the ones that you're going to hear about 
I guess seminal papers for metoprolol um, and carvedilol are Merit HF for metoprolol and Copernicus for carvedilol. And I can't I can't say that we've revisited the beta blocker benefits since then. The the reduction in mortality that was seen based on those early trials has been accepted, and now any study that is looking for benefit on top of that is assumed to be on a background of accepted GDMT, of which beta blockers are a cornerstone. That's Dr. Shweta Modwala, an advanced heart failure specialist at Beth Israel Medical Center. So we know that beta blockers are good, but do we know if one is better than the other? So what I found pretty surprising is that there's only one trial that compared two beta blockers against each other. This was the Comet trial. And it showed us that carvedilol was better in terms of survival when compared to metoprolol tartrate. Wait, Victoria, did you say tartrate? I thought metoprolol tartrate wasn't a part of GDMT. Well, yes, that's just one of the many things that the Comet trial has been criticized for. Honestly, if you pull up the abstract of the Comet trial in a room of even non-cardiologists and you just make them read the abstract, as you're reading it, you're going to, a lot of people will have this audible gasp because they realize why it's a crappy trial and an inadequate way of, uh, of deciding that metoprolol tartrate is, in, is not a great medication for heart failure. And so in the abstract, they talk about the gold doses that they titrated people up to. And a good dose of carvedilol is 25 milligrams twice a day. And that was the gold dose in the Comet trial. A gold dose of metoprolol is 200 milligrams a day. But it looks like in the Comet trial, the gold dose that patients were on for metoprolol tartrate was up to only 50 milligrams twice a day. And so it's like an apples to half an apple comparison. Don't get me wrong. You're not supposed to prescribe metoprolol tartrate for patients who have a reduced ejection fraction. And by commenting on the weaknesses of the Comet trial, I am not suggesting that you start prescribing it to your patients. But we should be aware as like evidence-based physicians who are able to tolerate a little bit of nuance and uncertainty that the only trial that was ever done comparing beta blockers was designed pretty clearly to show that one was better than the other, not to ask the question about which one was better. Wow. Mic drop. (laughs) So I guess the thing that we do know is that at least three beta blockers, carvedilol, metoprolol succinate, and bisoprolol do reduce mortality, which is a, a win at least. And a meta-analysis showed us that the largest effect on mortality is actually with carvedilol. You know, I wonder why that is, Victoria. Is it just that carvedilol acts both on beta receptors and alpha receptors, and these patients who are on carvedilol just get more benefit because they have better blood pressure control? So for example, alpha blockade is going to lead to increased afterload reduction. There's the lack of beta selectivity that may have some other theoretical benefits. And then there's the fact that carvedilol tends to improve your insulin sensitivity, whereas metoprolol and some of the other cardio-selective beta blockers tend to worsen your insulin sensitivity. Really? You know, I don't think I appreciate that carvedilol can actually improve insulin sensitivity in our patients and more so that other beta blockers actually contribute to insulin resistance. In general, I prefer carvedilol over metoprolol succinate or bisoprolol. The reason that I prefer carvedilol is twofold. One, I think that the data shows that it's on the whole, probably a little bit better with regards to morbidity and mortality long-term. Number two, I buy the incremental benefit that you get from improving insulin sensitivity and the metabolic impacts of a beta blocker long-term. Uh, 
potentially having some some negative consequences down the road. Right. I like how Dr. Katz emphasizes here that it's really in the long run that we can start seeing some of these negative metabolic effects with metoprolol succinate. Yeah, I also appreciate hearing how he weighs the pros and cons. Let's also hear from Dr. Motawala about which ones she reaches for and when. So someone who has borderline blood pressure, more likely to reach for the metoprolol. Someone who needs blood pressure lowering in addition to just the the overall beta blocker effects, I'll reach for the carbetalol. Okay, so now that we understand the pros and cons of some of the beta blockers, maybe the most important thing we can focus on is how we educate our patients on these meds and set them up for success. And if you do a crappy job of explaining to your patients why they need to be on the medications, they're not going to take them because taking pills is not fun. And so I have this conversation every single time I have a patient with a new reduction in their ejection fraction. And what I talk to them about is this is a really scary diagnosis. And we have a lot of treatment options that will improve the length of time that you live and that will improve the quality of your life. And our job is going to be to work together to find the group of these medications that you tolerate the best and that makes you live the longest. And that means that in a perfect world, you're going to be taking quite a few different medications because each of these medications work differently on your heart to help you live longer and help you feel better. 100% agree. You know, it really makes me wonder how we as clinicians might be contributing to some of this non-medadherence. I think a lot of people are left to their own misconceptions and maybe the most common one being, oh, they're just putting me on all these pills now, which totally hear their frustration for. But I think one of the most important things we could do to set them up for success is to give them a heads up about what they can expect. You might see a lowering of your heart rate in addition to a lowering of the blood pressure. And all of that allows the um, heart to have to do less work by taking some demand off of it and allows it to recover. Ooh, I like that a lot. Taking the demand off the heart and allowing it to recover. I think I'm definitely going to steal that for the next time I have to give the spiel. And... We're also going to try to get the doses of these medications up as high as we can possibly get them because the higher those doses are, the longer you will live. And we're going to work together and it's going to happen over a period of time. It's not an instant success, but over time, we're hopeful that you'll be able to handle them well without any major side effects. And so I only care about your blood pressure being low if it makes you feel lightheaded. And if it doesn't make you feel lightheaded, I'm not going to get scared by a number and I'm not going to back off on those medications. And the number that he's talking about is blood pressure numbers. And to that point, I think I'm grateful for cardiology blessings on this because I do find myself getting a little nervous when someone's blood pressure is like hundreds over 60s and we're up titrating GDMT meds. Totally. I have to admit I get a bit nervous too. But then I remind myself of this study I came across recently that showed us that for every 10 beats per minute increase in heart rate above 80, patients with reduced ejection fraction experience a 14% increase in all-cause mortality. And I think that really puts it into perspective for me. Wow, that is really motivating. I think it makes me want to uptitrate those beta blockers even more and try to take off some of that stress from the heart. Absolutely. Okay, so let's summarize. When you're deciding which beta blocker to reach for, remember, carbidolol may have the greatest effect with some added benefits of improved insulin sensitivity. But overall, you really want to tailor your selection to what your patient's blood pressure can tolerate. Yeah, and I think my biggest takeaway from all this is just how we frame the GDMT conversation. 
really giving them a heads up on at least two things. Hey, we're going to up titrate your meds as much as possible. And we're going to work as a team to do this. And two, your blood pressure will be lower and that's okay. But you need to let us know if you start feeling dizzy or lightheaded. All right, next on deck, the ACE inhibitors, the angiotensin receptor blockers, aka the ARBs, and the newest to the family, the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, aka the ARNIs. Well, if you think about the pathophysiology of heart failure to start, um, a lot of it is based on kind of a maladaptive response that involves the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Yep. And all that aldosterone leads to vasoconstriction, inflammation, and even fibrosis. And eventually all of these things result in adverse cardiac remodeling, kind of impairments in the relationship between the heart and the kidneys, and then eventually contribute to progression of the disease. And so the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, which have been around for a long time, they interrupt these pathways in different places. They block the downstream effects and then kind of ultimately improve outcomes. And in the recent years, a new player has kind of come into the heart failure picture, the Arnie's, which I think is funny. We call the Arnie's, Victoria, because there's only one Arnie, or at least <laughs> for the time being. But it was really the paradigm trial that really cemented this. It showed that Arnie's decreased cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization even more than enalapril. There's a ton of excitement after the paradigm trial for Secubitril Valsartan, which is composed of two drugs, Secubitril, which is a drug that blocks the degradation of BNP with Valsartan, which is an angiotensin receptor blocker. And so if you think about what BNP does, it's a natriuretic peptide, which means it makes you pee out sodium. If you inhibit its degradation, that means you pee out more sodium. And so there's a diuretic benefit from this medication. There's also a cardiac remodeling benefit that at least has been shown in vitro. Another thing that it does though, is it does increase the levels of angiotensin, which is bad. So the ARB component of the ARNI blocks that effect. So in combination, you ultimately increase the beneficial effects of this balanced system and decrease the deleterious effects. That sounds beautiful, right? This balance. Why do I have a feeling that Greg may point out some questionable study design here? There are two parts of the way the paradigm trial was, was designed that are controversial when we look back at it. The first part is the decision to have the comparator arm not be an equal dose of an ARB and instead be a dose of an ACE inhibitor, enalapril. The other issue with the paradigm trial is they had a really long run-in period that patients needed to be able to tolerate for several weeks before they were able to be in the trial. And so by virtue of selecting for a group of patients who already tolerate the drug, you're going to overestimate the treatment effect in the real world. And don't get, this is not shady. Like drug run-in periods are standard. It's the way that lots of trials are designed. But we, as the prescribers in the real world, need to be cognizant of the fact that when a run-in period like that exists, it necessarily overestimates the mortality benefit that we end up seeing just because of the way that it selects for patients who can tolerate the drug. Yeah, it's a really good food for thought. They compared it against an ACE, not an ARB. And obviously we can't dismiss the results, but I guess also just good to keep in mind that the patients in the study were people who already tolerated being on four weeks of an ACE or ARB and being on a beta blocker for four weeks prior to the study. 
Sure, maybe it is overestimated in terms of benefit, but I'm still a big fan of Arnie's. <laughs> you really do love Arnie's, Victoria. I do. You know, one thing that gets under my skin is how much hesitancy there can be about starting Arnie's, especially in someone with an acute exacerbation. I know some people would just probably defer to the outpatient setting when patients aren't being actively diuresed. So the Pioneer study showed us that it's actually safe to start Arnie's in acutely decompensated patients. And this was really game-changing. And now we can just start Arnie's de novo. Let's hear a little bit more about what that means from Dr. Motowala. And the newer recommendations have adopted um, the option for de novo Arnie initiation or what is being referred to as a direct to Arnie approach. And the reason to do that is that we've seen that it is safe and feasible to start patients on an ARNI without demonstrating tolerance to ACE inhibitors or ARBs beforehand. However, sometimes when you're starting these meds, the blood pressure isn't high enough to necessarily tolerate the vasodilatation and the blood pressure lowering effects of even the lowest dose of the ARNI. And in those situations, if you first want to demonstrate tolerability and then gradually up titrate, it is helpful to go first from an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Okay. So if we're worried about the blood pressure and want to start an ACE or ARB before the ARNI, how do we choose between an ACE or do we start an ARB first? When I'm starting my patients on some type of inhibition of the renin-angiotensin system, I have gone from an ACE inhibitor as my first choice where I, I used to just start lisinopril on patients and that would be what I would use, uh, to now I'll start an ARB instead. And the reason for that is twofold. One is you have less cough. And that's a big deal because having a cough is annoying. And then the other reason is because it makes your switch to Entresto, Secubitril, Valsartan, much easier because you don't have to do the 36-hour washout period. Right. So if the patient's already on an ACE, uh, then they do need that 36 hours of being off of an ACE before an RNA can be started. And that's really to minimize the risk of angioedema. But if you're switching from an ARB to an RNA, you thankfully don't have to make your patients go through that. 36 hours of a washout period. I would say we're not completely moving away from ACE inhibitors, but if you have an equivalent medication that doesn't cause a cough as frequently, it seems kind of like a no-brainer to use that other medication. And so ACE inhibitors are definitely becoming less favored in my practice and the practice of many others. So it sounds like in general, ARNIs are preferred over ARBs, which are preferred over ACE inhibitors. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So say we do got our patients on one of these life-saving meds that blocks the RAS system. And then the other thing we should be making sure we do is up titrating these meds as much as the kidney and the potassium can tolerate. In order to really up titrate these medications, you need the ability to order a basic metabolic panel and a basic understanding of what the side effects are going to be. And other than that, Anybody could do it. Okay, so as we're trying to uptitrate these life-saving meds, what should we be watching out for? And so I'll have a soft cutoff of a systolic blood pressure under 110. I'm skeptical about starting it. And a systolic blood pressure under 90, I definitely won't. And in that 90 to 110 range, it's really kind of like case-by-case basis. Sometimes you need to back off on the diuretic dose of the loop diuretic that someone's on because you're getting the additional natriuretic and thus diuretic effect from the secubitral portion of the drug. Yes, this is one of my favorite moves in heart failure clinic. It's really easy to forget that diuretics themselves actually don't have any mortality benefit. 
So if my patient appears otherwise euvolemic, I love cutting back on the diuretic in order to make some more room for these life-saving meds. That's a great, a great move, Victoria. Um, <laughs> I love it. Okay, so let's recap this section. ACE, ARBs, ARNIs all do a decent job at inhibiting the badness and downstream effects of aldosterone. The ARNIs have an added advantage, though, in preventing the breakdown of natriuretic peptides like BNP, which then helps in vasodilatation, helps pee out more sodium, helps decrease sympathetic tone. So if your patient's blood pressure can tolerate, really go ahead and reach for the ARNI, and you can start at de novo now. If you do have to choose between an ACE or an ARB, go for the ARB. It doesn't give that cough side effect. And if you do decide to transition to an ARNI, you don't have to wait for that 36-hour washout period since your last dose, like you have to do with ACE inhibitors. Now onto the next class of meds, what seems to be the sometimes forgotten stepchild of GDMT, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, also known as MRAs. So I think this is a drug class that is probably not given as much attention as it should be given in the treatment of HEFREF and is probably not prescribed as much as it should be prescribed because it does have the same type of morbidity mortality benefit in the same order as that that's seen for ARNIs and beta blockers and SGLD2 inhibitors. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan and I think it should be used more. The, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists often feel very onerous to add on because they're already on a drug that raises their potassium. And then you're adding this other drug that also raises their potassium. And I, I know that there's probably part of our part of the way that we're thinking about it internally, even if it's not explicit, where we're like, I'm already blocking that damn renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Why do I have to block it even more? And so it's I like fully get that. And I have that same inertia of how I'm doing it. But we need to be very forceful to remind ourselves to overcome that inertia because these are amazing drugs that are really beneficial for our patients. So in prepping for this episode, I was totally blown away to find out that in heart failure patients, the RAS system is on such overdrive to the point that aldosterone levels can reach up to 20 times higher than normal. Wow. I think maybe even more reason uh, to block that damn retin angiotensin aldo system, as Dr. Ked says, through as many different pathways as possible. The first reason is reverse cardiac remodeling and decreased fibrosis. The second is there seems really like there's an antiarrhythmic effect. And so if you pull up the Ephesus trial, it's a post-MI trial uh, comparing a plerinone to placebo. And if you look at those Kaplan-Meier curves, you see that the Kaplan-Meier curves for sudden death and for overall death start separating instantly. And that suggests if there's a reduction in sudden death from a plerinone versus placebo, that there's an antiarrhythmic benefit. And so you need to think about the idea of starting an aldosterone antagonist, especially in these patients who are in this vulnerable period before they get an ICD, as this is something that is potentially life-saving in the short term, not just when we get the remodeling down the road. Ah, so interesting. I think I'm sold. Yeah, I knew that aldosterone can contribute to remodeling and scar formation, but I guess I didn't realize that blocking it could also have some antiarrhythmic effects. Yeah, I guess it makes sense now that I think about it. You know, we know scar tissue is a nidus for arrhythmias. And you already told us in Pearl too that aldosterone can cause fibrosis and that can certainly lead to that scar tissue. Yep. And so with that, let's dive into the two options we have for MRAs, spironolactone and aplerinone. And most of the patients I've come across are on spironolactone. 
Yeah, same here. But I do wonder if spironolactone is the best one for our patients. Comparing eplerinone to spironolactone, spironolactone has a risk of gynecomastia and also has some incidence of sexual side effects. Aplerinone does not seem to have those same issues with it uh, because it's more selective with the way that it's inhibiting aldosterone. And that is really beneficial with the regards to patient tolerance and, uh, and just the way that you're talking to somebody on, about the drugs. I have one drug that may make you have sexual side effects and may make you grow breasts that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I have another drug that is equally effective but doesn't do those things. It's really hard to make the case that spironolactone is the one that we should go to. But for I think for a lot of financial reasons and what's on hospital formulas, we end up not using as much of plerinone as, uh, as perhaps we should. Yeah, so I got curious about this and actually looked this up. And so say someone doesn't have insurance, a Plarinone retails for at least in the US, $100 to $150 for a month supply. Compare that to Spironolactone, it's basically 10 bucks for a month. I will mention though, like a GoodRx coupon will bring that Plarinone down to like 30 to 40 bucks a month, but still, it's it's still like a good a good difference. Yeah, I totally wish we used a Plarinone more. I bet our patients don't even bring up some of these embarrassing side effects to us. Yeah, I bet it's there and can't just can't imagine how it impacts her life. Um, Victoria, why don't we transition to the last thing we wanted to cover, um, which is when to stop spironolactone and aplerinone. Yeah, I feel like spironolactone is definitely the first one to come off when our patient comes in with an AKI. Yeah, that makes sense with some of the guidelines too. The ACC consensus guidelines tell us that we need to stop MREs once the creatinine reaches 2.5 in men and 2 in women. And another thing to watch out for is the potassium. So when that potassium starts creeping up above 5, you can start thinking about adding a potassium binder. For example, I often try Pateramir or Veltessa in heart failure clinic. But obviously, if the potassium is still persistently above 5, then sure, maybe it's time to peel off the spironolactone. Ah, much to the dismay of heart failure specialists who are big fans of the MRA. All right, uh, why don't we recap the takeaways for this section? So spironolactone and plerinone, yes, it's another medication that increases our patient's potassium and blocks the RAS system, but it does decrease cardiovascular mortality. And even studies have shown that it has an antiarrhythmic effect, which is a huge win. When choosing between the two MREs, a plerinone doesn't give us the gynecomastia or sexual side effects, but is more expensive. And in terms of when to discontinue it, guidelines tell us hard stops are when creatinines are 2.5 in men and 2.0 in women, and also if that potassium creeps up persistently above five, as Victoria just told us. On to the new kid on the block, SGLT2 inhibitors in pagliflozin and dapagliflozin. Yeah, it's interesting how discovery actually came to be. It all started back in 2008 when the FDA began requiring that every new diabetes drug be tested in a cardiovascular outcomes trial. Interesting. I guess I'm glad they did that. Totally, because that's when we saw that patients who are on SGLT2 inhibitors had lower rates of death, MI, stroke, and hospitalizations, which is all things that we want. Yeah. I guess next that I think people wondered, you know, do SGLT2 inhibitors have a benefit in patients who don't have diabetes? And I think everyone was surprised that yes, it actually did decrease morbidity and mortality in patients regardless of if they had diabetes or not. Right. I sometimes get a quizzical look from my patients like, wait a minute, I don't have diabetes or my diabetes is under control. 
why would you want to start me on another medication? <laughs> yeah, I have been there too. And I think I try to give some hand wavy explanations why SGLT2s are so effective. There's all of these hypotheses about it has an augmented diuretic effect. But then there are other analyses that sort of suggest that it's not really the diuretic effect. Really? It's not the diuretic effect? I'm surprised by that. My personal hypothesis is that the hyperinsulinemia associated with metabolic syndrome is really catastrophic and that drugs that improve our glucose control by reducing our insulin needs are going to be beneficial from a cardiovascular perspective, partly by virtue of the reduction in hyperinsulinemia. And so there is something about hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia that is toxic to our cardiovascular system in the long term. And SGLT2 inhibitors definitely will have an impact on that, even if they don't have a huge role in reducing A1C. And so SGLT2 inhibitors are incredible. And if there's only one thing I'm quoted in the podcast as saying, I want it to be that. Uh, I think it's fair to say Dr. Katz is obsessed with SGLT2 inhibitors. What about you, Victoria? Are Arnie's still your favorite or have SGLT2s taken that spot? <laughs> nah, Arnie's are still my favorite. But one thing I do really appreciate about SGLT2 inhibitors is that they do have a little bit of a potassium lowering effect, which is great because so many of our other GDMT meds actually raise the potassium. Yeah, you know, I, I think I didn't appreciate that SGLT2s um, lower the potassium. That's a good good nugget to keep. I think it also kind of highlights that beautiful equilibrium. I think in an ideal world, right, if we got patients on all these meds, the potassium sparing ones and the potassium lowering ones would kind of just balance each other out. So another balancing interaction that we have to be mindful about is starting an SGLT2 inhibitor on a patient who's already on a diuretic. And because there is a bit of a diuretic effect to the SGLT2 inhibitors, I often, especially in patients who have a low loop diuretic requirement, I will often decrease the loop diuretic dose or cut it completely depending on what their baseline dose is. And in those people, I really do want to know what's happening with their renal function and their electrolytes at a one or two week interval. So I will say that I've seen some clinicians start SGLT2 inhibitors at 5 milligrams daily, which is about half the goal dose. This is particularly if they're unsure about how the patient's blood pressure or renal function will tolerate it. And then slowly they go up to 10 milligrams daily. So I guess this is a similar story with SGLT2 inhibitors. We got to keep an eye on the kidney function if it's giving us some clues that the patient's getting a bit dehydrated. Oh, those kidneys. Well, <laughs> yeah. Right. There are also important GFR cutoffs to keep in mind with SGLT2 inhibitors. So for empagliflozin, the GFR cutoff is 30, and for dapagliflozin, it's 20. If their GFR is less than 30, then the risk of a euglycemic ketoacidosis is prohibitively high, and you're not supposed to start those medications. And so I always counsel patients that if you are feeling nauseated, if you are feeling unwell, if something doesn't feel right after starting this medicine, you need to seek out medical care and you need to get your blood drawn so that we can see what's going on. Speaking of DKA, right now, SGLT2 inhibitors are contraindicated in patients with type 1 diabetes for the reason that that population is just at such a higher risk for DKA. The second is this signal for increased risk of genital yeast infections. And so the way that I'll talk to a patient about that is, I'll say just in very plain English, if you have itching in your privates, you can't be embarrassed about it and you need to speak up. And I saw one case of Fournier's gangrene related to an SGLT2 inhibitor in a patient who probably just didn't speak up for a while and had like 
some funny feelings going on in their nether regions for, for too long. But so you need to like de-embarrass patients regarding the fact that if you have itching down there, it is treatable and fixable, but we need to be aware of it. So to recap, SGLT2 inhibitors have a cardioprotective benefit in patients with heart failure, regardless of diabetes status. As someone on Twitter nicely put it, these medications are really heart meds and kidney meds um, and plus minus diabetes medications. If you're worried about someone's blood pressure and if they have room or not or them getting dehydrated because of the diuretic effect, you know, you can consider lowering other diuretics or starting at half the dose of the SGLD2 inhibitors and up titrating from there. All right, let's get to my favorite part, Shreya. How do we start GDMT on a patient with a newly reduced ejection fraction? Ah, yes, this is good stuff. I think we all know which meds to start, but when do we start them and in what order isn't as straightforward. Exactly. So unfortunately, there are no head-to-head trials on which approach is best, and there's definitely some prescriber style involved here. After all, medicine is an art, isn't it? (laughs) It very much is. Okay, so the conventional approach um, is usually starting with one of these meds, up titrating to the max dose, and then starting the next one. Generally in the order of starting an ACE, ARB, ARNI, followed by a beta blocker, then an MRA, and then finally an SGLT2 inhibitor. Yeah, I've seen that too, but more and more people are now starting to change their practice, especially after this new paper by McMurray and Packer came out proposing a different approach. He proposes is you start the beta blocker and the SGLT2 inhibitor as early as you can. And neither of those medicines is going to have a huge impact on blood pressure. And so almost everybody has a good ability to tolerate them pretty quickly. Then you start the ARNI, Secubitril Valsartan. Then the next step after that is you add the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. And there's a lot of wisdom in doing that because you can get patients up to their target doses a lot more quickly when they're already on the low doses of the medicines. So what's amazing to me is that this approach generally takes only four weeks to get our patients on all four life-saving meds. Four weeks, that's pretty great. Yeah, when traditionally it would have taken us more than six months to get them on all these meds. You know, my dad recently went through this and I think he just got so tired of the constant checkups and constantly adding meds. And I think he would have been someone who would have done just so much better that when he was hospitalized, getting the SGLT2 beta blocker started right away and then the RNE and MRA in a couple of weeks afterwards. This is a stylistic thing. It's not like we have high quality randomized control trial data demonstrating that we there's a higher incidence of getting people up to the target doses of all of these medicines using one approach versus the other. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the best approach is the one that gets results in your practice. If you asked around, there is a big push these days to try to get patients on all four of these drugs at the same time, you know, in rapid sequence. And I think that that is a great goal I think it is sometimes difficult to achieve if you have any concerns about hemodynamic stability or congestion or renal dysfunction or patient symptoms. And I do think that it's difficult to start everything at once and then have someone say that they don't feel good and then not know what to do with that. So that's a great point. I mean, I've definitely been in a situation where we've started multiple agents on a patient and suddenly They start feeling unwell or some other side effects begin to pop up and we're left scratching our heads as to which one it was. Yeah, definitely been there too. And then Dr. Modwala gave us another humbling reminder that if the side effect is a creatinine bump, 
to try and adjust things that don't have a mortality benefit. I think this point just can't be emphasized enough. I have a patient on all four of these meds, the RNA beta blocker, MRI, and an SGLT2 inhibitor. They're also probably on a loop diuretic. And I see that there's a little bit of an acute kidney injury that, you know, and the patient's feeling fine. I would first think about, is the spironolactone causing a problem? Are they over-diuresed? Do we need to adjust their loop diuretic? Um, did we just start the SGLT2 inhibitor and now are they a little bit dry? What are the other things that we could potentially optimize before we start discontinuing meds? And it usually involves adjusting the loop diuretic before, before touching the ARNI. And not just the loop diuretic, scan the whole patient's med list for other offenders. Oh yeah, I'm like a hawk when I see agents without any mortality benefit on my patient's med list like amlodipine taking up precious blood pressure room that I could be putting towards GDMT. In fact, I was recently on service and my attending said that blood pressure is like money in heart failure and you really have to spend it wisely. Mm, I am a sucker for good analogies. I love it. I am stealing that. Okay, so to recap, some experts really favor starting patients on low doses of multiple agents up front, like an SGLT2 and a beta blocker, and then adding in an ARNI followed by an MRA and then up titrating from there. Others take a more of a stepwise approach with starting with an ARNI, then a beta blocker, then an MRA, and then finally an SGLT2 inhibitor with the idea that if the patient has a side effect, it may be easier to tell which one may be the culprit. All of this has kind of pros and cons, and you just got to think about what's best for the patient in front of you and what resources you have available to you to kind of do this and get them on good doses. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share this with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you have any other tips that you want to add uh, or want to share this with your colleagues, please tweet us, leave us a comment on our Twitter, our website, our Instagram, our Facebook page. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Eugene Yorditsky, Dr. Nicholas Shikhan, and pharmacist Dr. Snehal Bhatt for peer reviewing this episode. Thank you to Dr. Shpatia for audio editing and to Dr. Salim Najar for the accompanying graphic. As always, we love hearing your feedback, so email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institution. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.